So thank you guys for coming. My name is Alexis LaPietra. I'm emergency medicine trained with a pain management fellowship. And after that pain management fellowship, I went back downstairs to the ER and said, I think we can do things a little bit better. And that translated into the healthcare system saying, LaPietra, we think you can do things better for us upstairs, yeah? I said, sure. So we really evolved the way we manage pain in the emergency department and upstairs in collaboration with really the whole house of medicine within the hospital. And I hope you guys find this informative. So I gave a talk once for sonocyte ASAP. I'm going to disclose it to you. It didn't pay my mortgage, but it's disclosed. These are some of our goals for today. As you guys know, we live in a pharmaceutically based model of care in the United States, which is not bad. Maybe not great, but not bad. And if you didn't know, we have an opioid crisis going on. So if you've been living under a rock, welcome to Vegas, 2018 opioid crisis. In 2016, we had 64,000 US drug fatalities. Some of that were due to illicit opioids. Some of that were due to prescription opioids. We want no drug fatalities related to what practitioners prescribe. So we have room to improve. When you look at some of these numbers and you look at preventable deaths related to prescription opioids, it's really, they're big numbers. So when you look at deaths at the Vietnam, the entire Vietnam War, 58,000, and that's a war. When you look at deaths from breast cancer, which is a huge problem in our country, lots and lots of research and funding, 41,000 deaths. And when you look at the peak of the HIV AIDS epidemic, up until now, I think was the biggest public health crisis of our time, we see that there were about 43,000 Americans that died at the peak. So the opioid crisis is really catastrophic. It's knocking out a generation. It goes across all racial barriers, age barriers, socioeconomic statuses. So really these emerging trends come from the idea that we need to treat pain better. We need to have a bigger toolbox so that we know when we can use opioids appropriately and when not to use opioids when it's inappropriate. So hopefully we'll develop some of these tools today. One caveat before we get started, opioids are necessary. So the opioid crisis has naturally demonized opioids and we have this huge pendulum swing. You know, 15, 20 years ago, we were really prescribing a lot of opiates, which is multifactorial, some miseducation, some push from legislative agencies, some push from pharma. But now the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side, where practitioners are afraid to prescribe opioids. They're afraid they're contributing to addiction. And we can't have this fear of a medication that's important. We don't want to live in a society where you can't prescribe opiates. It's quite barbaric. So we have to think about a few things. One, we have to think about what kind of pain we're managing, what type of illness is going on in the body, and do we have something to address that specifically? Inflammatory pain, neuropathic pain. We have to use tools in our toolbox for those kinds of pain we're trying to manage. And we have to care about the outcome of our patients down the road. So if patients are continually being exposed to opioids with every painful syndrome they may have over the years, it may increase the risk that one day they're going to be dependent or addicted. So just keeping that in mind, that there are harms associated with repeated opioid exposure, but we certainly want to use them when they are appropriate. We also have to remember in the acute setting, with acute pain, pain is okay, it's survivalistic. So we want to talk to our patients about realistic pain management goals, 
about what it means to have tolerable pain, what it means to be functional. So patients also have expectations when they come in for pain management in the emergency department, acute care setting, urgent care setting, outpatient setting. We have to explain the process of pain. So acute pain usually means there's an injury, there's something going on that needs time to heal. And the body will heal, but we want you to have some tolerable level of pain while you're healing, and we want you to be functional while you're healing. But we're not going to be able to take your pain score down to a zero, especially in the emergency department. Definitely not in the acute care setting where you're with patients for a very brief time. So pain expectations, empowering patients to understand more about the pain and healing process is important so people understand why we're not just giving out opioids. They're going to make everyone feel better. They're going to take away everyone's pain. But we can't have the entire country doped up on Percocet and Vicodin, right? Might be bad. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be great. We'll try. Okay, so case one. This is, uh, all, these are all cases I've had in the emergency department. And uh, this is kind of how we evolved our pain management program, looking at the need of our patients. We had a 37-year-old woman who came in with history of renal stones. She's had them in the past. And she said, you know, I'm vomiting. I have this terrible flank pain. I see the blood in my urine. I've had it, you know, I had it one or two years ago. Same thing. But I will disclose, Doc, I did have an issue with opioid addiction in the past. And the last time I had my kidney stone, I really had this, have to have this conversation with the emergency department doc about what we can do to get my pain under control. I tried the IV anti-inflammatories and the Tylenol and the fluids, and it really wasn't better. So we had this discussion, and I did take morphine. Now, my pain felt better, and that was great. But for weeks, I craved more opioids. And I really don't want to go down that path again. So is there anything else? Do you have anything else? So we did standard of care for her with the Keturilac, 15 milligrams IV, which I will tell you is the analgesic ceiling of Ketorolac, if you didn't know. Um, you know, we were giving 60 milligrams IM or 60 milligrams IV many years ago. Then we started doing 30. Now we have even more evidence that 15, maybe even 10, is the analgesic ceiling. So when we're looking at 10, 15, 30, 60, we're not getting any more benefit the higher we go. But we're probably going to have more side effects. So trying to understand or follow the literature for analgesic ceilings for some of these anti-inflammatories and other meds is important so that we're dosing appropriately. So we did 15. She got some fluids. She got some anti-emetics. And once she was no longer vomiting, she got acetaminophen. An hour later, she has a little hydronephrosis on ultrasound. She definitely has hematuria. She's really not feeling any better. She's a little tachycardic. She's a little diaphoretic. And she says, you know, I think I'm going to have to take the morphine. Well, what we do have for renal colic, we do have mounting evidence that intravenous lidocaine is possibly another tool you can put in your toolbox for this group of patients. This drug has been around for a while. It was studied in the early 2000s for intractable cancer pain, neuropathic cancer pain, where patients are on benzodiazepine drips, they're on opioid drips, they really have a terrible quality of life, they're sleeping, they're constipated. So researchers started looking at what else we can do. And with intravenous lidocaine infusions, patients had significantly less pain, significantly less stomolence, um, constipation, and they were reporting improved quality of life. So this continued to be studied. It was looked at for post-operative pain, for any abdominal surgeries, decreasing the need for opioids, decreasing ileus, increasing patients getting out of bed and eating sooner. Then we had a nice Cochrane review in 2015, which highlighted really everything that the literature had been showing us before. We really have 
less opioids, the decreased length of stay, all the good stuff that we want in post-operative patients. And the bottom line, there, there was moderate evidence to support the use of intravenous lidocaine as a post-operative analgesic. And there was no increase in arrhythmia rate. There was no increase in death. There was no documented toxicity. And this was about 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram that was given. Now, fast forward, well, this is actually a little reversed. At the same time that they're studying post-operative pain, physicians in Iran were battling with how to manage renal colic because they don't have intravenous anti-inflammatories. So when you go into the emergency department there, you can get IM, diclofenac, or you're getting intravenous opioids. So a lot of people are just getting intravenous opioids when they're vomiting or IM injections failed. So these physicians started looking at what about IV lidocaine for renal colic, and we're going to compare it to morphine because that's what we're giving. And what they found is the IV lidocaine group actually did a little bit better than the intravenous morphine group in terms of their pain scores at 5, 10, 30 minutes. They also found there was no difference in adverse events. Everybody had a few adverse events, nothing significant, little dizziness, little nausea. But really, they found that the IV lidocaine performed even a little bit better than the intravenous morphine. The lidocaine was dosed at 1.5 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 200, well below the toxic level. And the morphine was dosed weight-based, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. So contraindications to intravenous lidocaine when you're thinking about using it for renal colic, obviously if there's an allergy to lidocaine, and if the patient has any seizure history at all. So intravenous lidocaine does lower the seizure threshold. Anybody who's even had an alcohol withdrawal seizure, this is going to be a no-go for them. You do want patients to be on the cardiac monitor because, of course, anytime we're infusing IV lidocaine, you have the risk of local anesthetic systemic toxicity. But as I mentioned, the recommended dosing for this is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, and the toxic dose of lidocaine is 5 milligrams per kilogram. So we're really very subtoxic. But... Always safe, not sorry. So take home point number one. In your toolbox, renal colic patients who are not responding to standard of care, maybe you've given multiple doses of opioids, or patients who say, I don't want the opioid, I can't tolerate the opioid, this is gaining traction in the acute care setting as just another tool you have. We don't have a huge fund of research, especially not in emergency medicine yet, but this is starting to gain popularity in light of the opioid crisis and in light of just trying to have better options when we're managing pain. I like to do fun fact brain breaks because when you talk for 50 minutes at all of you, you start to see like the lulls and you just, ah, oh, shit, sorry guys. So brain break. Turn off your doctor, practitioner, nurse, everybody brain. This guy has a world record for the most Simpsons tattoos. Life goals, right? He has 206 Simpsons tattoos, and he reminds me of the patient I had on Saturday who was septic from pneumonia, who needed an IV, who had full sleeve tattoos on both arms, but said, no, 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 please, I'm so scared of needles. <laughs> like, man, buck up, man, buck up. It's different, though, I hear. It's different. So you guys tell me, if you have tattoos and you've had an IV, tell me how it's different. So case two is a case about a gentleman who has low back pain, whether or not it's from motor vehicle collision. He slipped and fell on the ice, comes in after about two days, musculoskeletal low back pain, hurts when he moves, achy in that one spot, no red flags, no fever, no cellulitis in the area, not an IV drug abuser, no risks for cancer or malignancy, just general run-of-the-mill low back pain. And he says... 
you know, my neighbor gets low back pain occasionally, and he says the doc just gives him a month or two of Percocet, and he feels great. I just need that, and I'll get out of your hair. I know you're really busy. I'm like, I'm not that busy, but... So we do our physical exam, and yeah, he's got musculoskeletal low back pain, but he looks pretty uncomfortable, and you really do want to get him up and moving and functional. So we have our little pain is okay, pain is survivalistic, you're not going to die, tolerance function talk. But what do we do in terms of giving him analgesics? So the opioid script for 60 days is a no-go. It's just not good in general, but the evidence does not support it. So for acute occupational low back pain, where we're talking sprain or strain, there's been research looking at what is the ideal combination of medications, and it's really not single-agent opioids. Some studies looking at naproxen alone versus naproxen plus oxycodone have shown that the oxycodone addition does nothing. The patients are not reporting improved pain when we're adding oxycodone. Also looking at naproxen alone, naproxen versus diazepam or Valium really not getting any more benefit, unfortunately, with adding the benzodiazepine. So the foundation of anti-inflammatory is great. Why? Because they have inflammatory pain. So let's try and treat that. We have a couple different ways to do that. So NSAIDs, of course, are really the ubiquitous anti-inflammatory. There is multiple over-the-counter formulations. There's multiple you know, selective COX inhibitor formulations. What I use in our shop is ibuprofen. It's over-the-counter, and it's what I have. The studies on ibuprofen also do not support the slugging of 800 milligrams into a patient three or four times a day. Analgesic sealing of ibuprofen is actually just 400. Anything above that dose is going to increase your side effects, increase the likelihood that the patient's probably going to stop taking it because you've chewed away at their stomach. So if a patient can tolerate anti-inflammatories for a week or two weeks while their body is healing, and we're only giving them 400, that means they may be able to get over this illness without the need for any other medication. But a patient who's taking the NSAIDs and not tolerating them, but still in significant pain, is going to come back to me or come back to you and say, I can't do this anymore. I'm in pain. It's not working. What else can you give me? And you may want to escalate to opioids. So by preserving a lower dose, you may be able to retain patients on that simpler algorithm of care and not have to escalate. Additional studies show adding acetaminophen, about 1,000 milligrams, may drive the pain score a bit lower than if you're using ibuprofen or Tylenol alone. So a trend is multimodal analgesia. So instead of single-dose mu agonism, which just masks pain, does not treat pain, let's go ahead and treat pain using multiple agents that act synergistically. Alone, they may not be really strong analgesics, but in combination, they can have profound pain relief. So no contraindication to adding 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen three or four times a day. Go ahead and add that to the NSAID. When we look at dental pain or post-operative pain as a model of pain for research, I think those are great models because dental pain is excruciating and post-operative pain is no fun. When we look at acetaminophen and Motrin for these pain models, the combination of 400 and a gram is superior to 400 alone, a gram alone, 200, 500, all these different combinations. So applying this to musculoskeletal pain makes sense, inflammatory pain, and we're using multiple combinations and layering the pain management on. Also, what about the skin? We often forget in the acute care setting that you can use the skin as a way to administer medication. So by utilizing things like diclofenac gel, 
or a uh, Flector diclofenac patch or a lidocaine patch, you can actually deliver analgesics right at the area where the person has pain. So if they have a sprained ankle and you're using systemic analgesics only, you're really dosing the entire body for a very focal injury. If you can use a topical medication and give anti-inflammatory right at the site of injury, decrease inflammation right where it is, you may avoid the need for anything systemic. When we also have patients who have diabetes or renal insufficiency or hypertension and we're trying not to give big doses or really any dose of anti-inflammatory, a topical administered anti-inflammatory has very little, if any, systemic absorption. You can use Tylenol with it and you can then get them some pain relief where they need it. When we do our exam for the patient with low back pain or neck pain or shoulder pain, instead of just feeling and they're going, ow, yes, ow, ow, and you're like, okay, good, documented pain. What about we spend just 30 to 60 seconds mapping out that area of pain to see if we can find a tiny little hyper-irritable area of muscle spasm called a trigger point. Trigger points are part of a the syndrome called myofascial pain syndrome, and they're very, very focal, hyper-irritable areas of muscle spasm that feel like knots or nodules or taut bands. You all have them. They're in your trap from sitting and charting, or they're from doing your gardening. It's that lumpy, bumpy, sore focal area that you feel in your back. And if you spend a minute talking to your patient while examining them, you can say, is this the area where you have pain? Is this more painful than where I just was? And when you find that knot and you've identified a focal source, you can actually treat it with a trigger point injection. So the trigger point injection is a really easy procedure. It's very effective in the acute care setting because you can resolve a lot of that musculoskeletal pain with just a tiny injection and a little bit of local anesthetic. All of the stuff I just told you about low back pain is true for treating trigger points, but you might fall short, patients might still have pain, and all of this takes a lot of time. So anti-inflammatories and Tylenol and physical therapy and stretching, we're talking about days and days, maybe a week, two weeks of patients trying to recover. With the trigger point injection, you can resolve that pain by mechanically inactivating the trigger point by doing it right then and there in the office or the emergency department or urgent care setting. The equipment you already have, it is a needle that, oh, what's an alcohol swab first? Let's be clean. Wear gloves, use an alcohol swab, don't spit on the patient. Um, the 21 to 25 gauge needle, although this looks like a 14 gauge needle in this picture, it's not a fine needle biopsy, I promise. It is a tiny little needle. Uh, the most important thing about needle size is where is your trigger point and how deep is your trigger point. So if you have a 25 gauge needle, that's great because it's nice and tiny, that's all you need. But if it's only a quarter inch long and you have a deep trigger point and you can't engage it with just that tiny short needle, you're not going to get anywhere. So needle choice really depends on where the trigger point is, how deep it is, and making sure your needle is long enough so that you can engage it when you are doing your procedure. A little local anesthetic is lovely because you will now be stabbing your patient to make them feel better. So no pain, no gain. 
Yes, I know you have a hyperirritable area of muscle spasm, but I need to mechanically break it up, and in doing that, I will cause a little bit of muscle trauma. So the local anesthetic, only one or two cc's will wash away all of that pain you just caused and really completes this procedure so the patient can leave pain-free. The local anesthetic does not do much for the pain relief of the trigger point. It's really the needle. And I will also let you know that as practitioners, doing, using the lidocaine allows this to be called a trigger point injection and allows this to be a billable procedure. If you only do the dry needling portion, it is not considered a trigger point injection and is therefore not a billable procedure with a CPT code. So important. And lastly, put a Band-Aid on. The patient doesn't bleed on their nice shirt. So the technique is you localize that trigger point by talking with the patient. Does this fully reproduce your pain? Does this knot right here? Is that really what's generating your pain? Yes, great. Pinch the trigger point, alcohol swab, and you put the needle in at a 30-degree angle to engage the trigger points. So you want to put the needle deep enough only to get into the trigger point. Now, pathognomonic trigger points will twitch when the needle hits it, and that's awesome. The muscle's actually inactivating and relaxing. If you do not get the twitch, fear not, carry on. You put the needle in, move it almost all the way out, but don't bring it all the way out because then you have to start again. So in, almost all the way out, and then just redirect, almost all the way out, redirect, almost all the way out. The goal is to break up the entire area of muscle spasm. It's not big, but you do have to move the needle a little bit. So just a couple millimeters northeast, southwest, 12, 6, 3, 9, whatever you want to do, about one or two times around, just almost all the way out before redirecting will break up the spasm and then you go ahead and infiltrate one to two cc's of local anesthetic. I like to do a little massage. Who doesn't like a little massage? And then you put a Band-Aid on and you're done. And usually in re-evaluation, one to two minutes later, the patient will have significantly less pain in that area. They're going to start doing the dance where they're like trying to test you. You're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, all right, fine, nice, thanks, doc. So that is just a testament to what you just did. On reevaluation, they usually feel a lot better. So take on point number two. When we're dealing with musculoskeletal pain, sprains, reflexively reaching for opioids is not great. It's inflammatory pain. We want to treat the inflammatory pain. Layer on some anti-inflammatories if there's no contraindications, topicals, Tylenol, and if you can find a trigger point, do the trigger point injection. It is a billable procedure. I have templates and CPT codes if interested. Easy to implement in your shop. Fun fact, this is Lindsay Lindbergh. I like um, world records because I think they're funny. It's just amazing what people want to achieve. Uh, Lindsay Lindbergh wanted to break the world record for girls who can crush apples with their bicep in a minute. Because why not, Lindsay? She's pretty buff, looks cute. She can crush 10 in one minute. So ladies work in those biceps after pain week, crush some apples. If you get a trigger point, let your colleague inject you. <laughs> Case three. So opioid tolerant patients we find challenging in the acute care environment because they're already on very strong medications and we feel like we can't go up against MS Cotton 100 milligrams when they come in in acute pain. They're already taking that. But in fact, we can. So when you see people who are opioid tolerant and controlled really well day to day on, on opioids but have an acute flare, you do have tools in your toolbox. If you 
decide to just give more opioids on top of opioids for people who maybe didn't come to pain week, they are just pissing in the ocean because the neurochemistry of an opioid-tolerant brain is very different than an opioid-naive brain. The mu receptors in an opioid-tolerant brain are saturated with opioids. So when you add more opioids, what are you doing? You are urinating in seawater. There is nothing for them to attach to. Let's use something else. We may have to use some opioid, yes. But when we use opioids on top of opioids on top of opioids, we're hurting our patients. We're causing potentially allodynia down the road, potentially hyperalgesia, potentially worsening chronic pain. So if we can, let's try to just use something different. I know opioid-tolerant patients have a lot of pain, and they are aware of changes in their pain, and they may not really want Motrin or Tylenol. They're going to laugh at you. But if there is an acute component suddenly from an injury or whatever happened, there's probably some inflammation going on that may not be there chronically. So what about using some of the anti-inflammatories together? Why not? It's Hopefully, if there's no contraindications, it will not hurt them. And adding muscle relaxants in the acute phase you know, the studies aren't great. The studies are actually showing muscle relaxants pretty much do nothing. But what they do is they relax the patient. We know sedation is a side effect. And there's a lot of anxiety when patients have pain. We know pain is a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon. So there's more than just the nociceptive component to pain. And if you can get a patient a little bit more relaxed, the patient may in turn feel a little bit better. Patients who have neuropathic components to their pain and are not on neuropathic agents or maybe on lower doses, giving an analgesic loading dose may help drive that pain down as well. So perioperatively for a lot of joint injections or back surgeries, before patients have any neuropathic pain, anesthesia will load with these nerve agents like gabapentin or Lyrica in order to prevent that nerve irritation. So there is a role for analgesic loading of these medications. We of course know there's also a role for daily maintenance of these medications. And the emerging trend, at least in the acute care setting, is ketamine. Why? Because ketamine is typically not floating around in everybody's brains all day long unless you are having an awesome time somewhere in Vegas. And therefore, you can utilize that receptor. You can antagonize the NMDA receptor and potentially have an analgesic benefit. So what we are used to using ketamine for in acute care settings is procedural sedation or intubation where you've dissociated the patient and they're just blankly staring while you're doing something painful and, you know, it's a nice calm environment. But driving down that ketamine continuum all the way to a low dose like 30 milligrams, a subdissociative or analgesic dose, will provide you an awake patient who's communicative but has less pain. So the analgesic dosing of ketamine is really small, no vital sign abnormalities, no need for cardiac monitoring, but you will achieve pain relief. And it is opioid sparing, and you can give it in combination with opioids. You will tend to not have to give as high doses. The way that it is dosed, there are many ways to dose it, but uh, traditional weight-based dosing is around 0.3 milligrams per kilogram given on a pump over about 10 minutes. But the half-life is pretty short, so if your patient's gonna be with you for more than an hour and you're using a pump anyway, go ahead and start an infusion dose at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per hour that you can titrate if needed. But that provides continuous non-opioid analgesia 
You can add the Toradol and the Tylenol and whatever else you want to. And if you need to give a little bit of opioid on top of it, great. But you're not having to use these huge doses, single dose of intravenous opioids for patients who come in with opioid tolerant pain in acute crisis. You can also use ketamine intranasal. So intranasal medications are a wonderful emerging trend because we don't have to stab patients intramuscularly. If they're vomiting or they can't take something by mouth, I mean, the rectal way to administer, great, but we have a better way. Maybe we could use the nose. So intranasal medication for ketamine is dosed 0.5 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 50 milligrams. In the mucosal atomizing device, it is exquisitely easy to use. You can use it, of course, without any vital sign monitoring, as I mentioned earlier. It's great in children because, again, we don't like to stab children. IVs are hard in children. But if they'll tolerate a little nasal spray, you can have some analgesia. This is not for sedation. This is just for analgesic. This is a small dose. And lastly, it works in about 15 minutes, so it's pretty quick. And if you need to redose, you can do that in about 30 or 45 minutes. So the way we use this is in our fast track area with minor fractures. So just a simple ankle fracture, simple distal radius fracture. We do intranasal ketamine with some Motrin Tylenol. Patients do great. Their crisis is broken. We're starting to maintain them a little bit while they're with us, and we can send them home with a significantly lower pain score with multimodal analgesia to, again, maintain them, but we've broken their crisis. We have a lot of patients with opioid use disorder in my community, so they do come in with these injuries, and they're saying, I really would prefer to not have any opioid, and we're able to offer just some extra tools to help them. So take-home message number three is ketamine is another strong analgesic that you can use in the acute care setting that is great for opioid-tolerant patients, for kids, or for simple injuries. Fun fact, this is Zeus. He's the largest dog in the world. He unfortunately has passed away, but he still holds the record. He's 7'4", he's 155 pounds, and what I know is I don't want to clean up his poop. He's adorable, but my God. So case four. This is about an abscess. So everybody can read, it's about an abscess. I'm going to move on. What are we going to do to treat this abscess that is not barbaric, saying, I'm sorry, it's going to hurt. The lidocaine doesn't work, but I'll be as quick as I can. We're going to use nitrous oxide. So emerging trend, what about single-agent nitrous oxide for analgesia for procedural pain? Well, it's awesome. So we have it um, at my shop, and we use it for everything and anything painful that's going to be you know, a contained period of pain. So what are the benefits? The benefits are that it's inhaled in combination with oxygen. It's like propofol. It works within 30 seconds of administration. Patients do not need to have an NPO status. They do not need a line. They do not need cardiac monitoring. At most, they need a little pulse ox on their finger, which I think just appeases the world because we're giving them at least 30% oxygen. And don't give it to someone who needs oxygen. Just give them oxygen. So it's very safe, but we put them on a pulse ox. And it's wonderful. It is an analgesic and an anxiolytic. So you can start it before you touch the patient or before you go near the kid who's screaming, not because you're hurting them, but because they're scared of you. So put it on, let the patient or the child breathe, and really you have a glorious procedural experience. You can use it for really, like I said, anything. So this list was small, evidence-based when I started, and now my own evidence, it has grown. So we're using it for our cardio versions. We're using it for foreign body removal. 
I don't know if anybody's had a fecal disimpaction done on them. I'm sorry if you have. I imagine it sucks because it, it sucks for everyone. But it's an important thing that we have to do sometimes, and a little nitrous oxide makes it just all that more not terrible. So contraindications, people who have active pulmonary disease who need oxygen, don't give it. People who you need to do mental status exams on every one minute, don't do it because your patient's going to be a little bit somnolent. And patients who are in their first or second trimester of pregnancy, there's data out there, dental hygienists that are exposed every day have an increased risk of spontaneous abortion or a higher rate of infertility. So don't give it to prego patients. But your third trimester pregos, yes. Use nitrous. In Britain, they're using this as part of standard of care for labor pain. It's gaining some traction in the United States as well. So they get nitrous when they arrive, and they breathe nitrous all through labor, and they do great. So when you have a patient who's in their third trimester and comes in with an acute injury, we're like, oh, my God, this lady's pregnant. What are we going to do? Well, now you know you can use nitrous. So nitrous is great is your take-home message. Okay, this is my newest find. I am in love with this. What in God's name? This is upside down archery. First of all, these girls are amazing. Holy crap. Well, we're in Vegas or Disolay. This is probably where they live. But this is a national, no, no, an international sport. Are you not impressed? This is the most impressive thing you've seen all day. If it's not, you guys lead awesome lives. These girls are upside down and shooting a friggin' arrow that's sharp and could hurt someone. And they compete, and they're amazing. So go women. Case five. This is our last case to wrap it up. We have a headache patient. You've given standard of care. You've given some dexamethasone to prevent recurrence. You've even started valproic acid, which is used typically for maintenance therapy, but analgesic dosing in the emergency department or acute care setting, 500 milligrams. You've even maybe given haloperidol, which is definitely an emerging trend for headache, but can be very effective. 2.5 IV, you can give it IM. None of this has worked. What about sphenopalatine ganglion block? So the little sphenopalatine ganglion is a parasympathetic and autonomic ganglion that sits in the back of the nasal cavity and has been associated with some flares of migraines or even acute headaches. So if we have this little ganglion that's somewhat accessible to us, why not use it? So there it is, and that's where you put your medication. So how do we get the medication up the nose? Well, if you don't like your patient or you don't have atomizers, you can get the long Q-tip, and you can soak it in 4% viscous lidocaine, and you can tell them to go into the sniffing position, which is very... Sounds a little demoralizing. And you can stick the Q-tip in their nose all the way until you hit resistance, and it will lay on the sphenopalatine ganglion. You leave it for 10 minutes. Promise them you will come back. And it can anesthetize and do its business. This is like, I know we do a lot of barbaric things in medicine, but my god. Well, the other way you can do it is you can atomize it. So those atomizing devices are really great. I highly recommend them. And you can put solution 4% lidocaine in there, just a half to one cc per naris, atomize the 4% uh, lidocaine, not the viscous kind, but the liquidy kind, and it will just layer onto the nasal mucosa. It will block the sphenopalatine ganglion and can be part of your multimodal approach to refractory headache. Or in patients who say, you know, I've taken everything at home. I, just, I really need something different or who they, they don't want an IV. I mean, there are so many scenarios. This is just something in your toolbox 
that you can use for patients with migraine or headache. And one of my directors has a little bottle of lidocaine in her pocket. She has bad migraines. And she always talks to me before she does it. But a couple times over the past year, she's done a sphenopalatine block on herself on shift. And she's always very impressed. And she's like my poster child for sphenopalatine ganglion blocks because they really do work. So the take-home point for migraine is I went through all those options that you have. So NSAIDs, even a little steroid for headaches over 24 hours, add the valproic acid, do some fluids, add the Reglan, what about the Haldol, lots and lots of tools. Opioids have been shown to worsen the lives of people with chronic migraines. I'm, I'm sure there's evidence out there I'm not aware of, but what I've read so far on migraines, in the emergency department at least, is people who are on daily opioids for migraines or who are getting a lot of opioids in the acute setting tend to have a little bit more disability, may have more anxiety, may have more depression. So if we want to avoid opiates for this group, which I think is smart, we have a lot of different tools, and the sphenopalatine ganglion block happens to be a nice intervention for you guys to use. So in summary, we have lots of trends that are coming out. Do we have robust RCTs on all of them? No, but we do have good evidence to start looking at them more critically or to understand that in difficult patients, patients who cannot tolerate opioids, patients who are on opioids every day, we do have to reach for other things than just single-dose opioid when we know they're really just masking the acute pain but not actually treating the acute pain. So remembering multimodal analgesia is an important way to drive pain scores down by having syndromic targeted pain relief. And that's really my take-home emerging trend. That is my email. I have lots more info on all of this for you. The last little bit I'll tell you is I started an alternatives to opioids program at St. Joe's, which has gained a lot of traction. And we were able to decrease our dispensing of ED opioids for acute pain by 50% while retaining the same pain reduction and by retaining the same patient satisfaction. And we reduced our discharge opioids by 80%, which is multifactorial, we must have begun a lot of discharge opioids because that's a crazy number. But again, we look at recidivism, patient satisfaction, follow-up, and we're finding that these modalities are really successful for acute pain, and opioids should really be your last resort. Keep opioid-naive patients opioid-naive, and they will have less risk of dependency and addiction down the road. I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Yes, for nitrous. Nitrous oxide can cause gases to expand in the body. And if there's a trapped gas in the body, it can cause barotrauma. So active otitis medius, active severe sinusitis, pneumothorax, small bowel obstruction, the trapped gases, you would not want to cause a viscous perf. Well, while you're using your nitrous, I don't know how you wouldn't know there was a small bowel obstruction going on, but um, trapped gases don't use nitrous oxide. Yes? We have um, 120 uh, emergency department beds. We, uh, I don't know, like 900 other beds. I only work in the ER. We have 60 attendings and uh, 20. We're the third busiest in the country. We have 170,000 visits. So, yeah. In Patterson, New Jersey. Come see me. <laughs>